0: Chapter 10 of The Martyrs of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Martyrs of Science by David Brewster. Life of Tycho Bragg Chapter 4. Tycho resumes his astronomical observations is attacked with a painful disease, his sufferings and death in 1601, his funeral, his temper, his turn for satire and raillery, his piety, account of his astronomical discoveries, his love of astrology and alchemy, observations on the character of the alchemists, Tycho's elixir, his fondness for the marvellous, his automata and invisible bells, account of the idiot called lep whom he kept as a prophet history of tycho's instruments his great brass globe preserved at copenhagen present state of the highland of yuun although tycho continued in his new position to observe the planets with his usual assiduity yet the recollection of his sufferings and the inconveniences and disappointments which he had experienced began to prey upon his mind to affect his health notwithstanding the continued liberality of the emperor and the kindness of his friends and pupils he was yet a stranger in a distant land misfortune was unable to subdue that love of country which was one of the most powerful of his affections and though its ingratitude might have broken the chain which bound him to the land of its nativity it seems only to have riveted it more firmly his imagination thus influenced Acquired an undue predominance over his judgment he viewed the most trifling occurrences as supernatural indications and in those azure moments when the clouds broke from his mind and when he displayed his usual wit and pleasantry, he frequently turned the conversation to the subject of his latter end this state of mind was the forerunner though probably the effect of a painful disease which had doubtless its origin in the severity and continuity of his studies on the thirteenth of october when he was supping at the house of a nobleman called rosenberg he was seized with the retention of urine which forced him to leave the party this attack continued with little intermission for more than a week and during this period he suffered great pain attended with a want of sleep and temporary delirium during which he frequently exclaimed ne frustra vixi se videre. on the twenty-fourth he recovered from this painful situation and became perfectly tranquil his strength however was gone and he saw that he had not many hours to live he expressed an anxious wish that his labours would be redound to glory of his maker to whom he offered up the most ardent prayers he enjoined his sons and his son-in-law not to allow them to be lost he encouraged his pupils not to abandon their pursuits he requested kepler to complete the rudolphin tables and to his family he recommended piety and resignation to the divine will among those who never quitted tycho in his illness was eric a swede and relation of his own and a counsellor to the king of poland this amiable individual never left the bedside of his friend and administered to him all those attentions which his situation required turning to him thanked him for his affectionate kindness and requested him to maintain the relationship with his family he then expired without pain amid the consolations the prayers and the tears of his friends this event took place on the twenty fourth of october sixteen o one when he was only fifty-four years and ten months old the emperor rudolph evinced the greatest sorrow when he was informed of the death of his friend and he gave orders that he should be buried in the most honourable manner in the principal church of the ancient city. The funeral took place on the 4th November, and he was interred in the dress of a nobleman and with ceremonies of his order. The funeral oration was pronounced by Yesenius before a distinguished assemblage, and many elegies were written on his death. Tycho was little above the middle size, and in the last years of his life he was slightly corpulent he had reddish yellow air and ruddy complexion he was of a sanguine temperament and is said to have been sometimes irritable and even obstinate this falling however if he did possess it was not exhibited towards his pupils or his scientific friends who ever entertained for him the warmest affections and esteem some of his pupils had remained in his house more than twenty years and in the quarrel which arose between him and kepler and which is allowed to have originated entirely in the temper of the latter he conducted himself with the greatest patience and forbearance there is a reason to think that the irritability with which he was been charged was less an affection of his mind than the effect of that noble independence of character which belonged to him and that it has been inferred chiefly from his conduct to some of those high personages with whom he was brought into contact when Valkendorp, the president of the council kicked his favourite hound. It was no proof of irritability of the character of Tycho, expressed in strong terms in disapprobation of the deed. It was, doubtless, a great weakness in his character that he indulged his turn for satire, without being able to bear retaliation. His jocular habits, too, sometimes led him into disagreeable positions. When the Duke of Brunswick was dining with him at Uraniburg, the Duke said, towards the end of the dinner that as it was late he must be going tycho jocularly remarked that this could not be done without his permission upon which the duke rose and left the party without taking leave of his host tycho became indignant in his turn and continued to sit at table but as if repenting of what he had done he followed the duke who was on his way to the ship and calling upon him displayed the cup in his hand as if he had washed out his offence by a draught of wine tycho was a man of true piety and cherished the deepest veneration of the sacred scriptures and for the great truths which they reveal their principles regulated his conduct and their promises animated his hopes his familiarity with the wonders of the heavens increased instead of diminishing his admiration of the divine wisdom and his daily conversation Was elevated by a constant reference to a superintending providence as a practical astronomer tycho has not been surpassed by any observer of ancient or of modern times the splendour and number of his instruments the ingenuity with which he exhibited in inventing new ones and in improving and adding to those which were formerly known and his skill and assiduity as an observer have given a character to his labours and a value to his observations which will be appreciated to the latest posterity the appearance of the new star in fifteen seventy two led him to form a catalogue of seven hundred and seventy seven stars vastly superior in accuracy to those of hippocarpus and Woolu Beige. his improvements on the lunar theory were still more valuable he discovered the important inequality called the variation and also the annual inequality which depends on the position of the earth in its orbit he discovered also the inequality in the inclination of the moon's orbit and in the motion of her nodes he determined with new accuracy the astronomical refractions from an altitude of forty-five degrees down to the horizon where he found it to be thirty-four minutes and he had made vast collection of observations on the planets which formed the groundwork of kepler's discoveries and the basis of the rudolphin tables tycho's powers of observation were not equal by his capacity for general views it was perhaps owing more to his veneration for the scriptures than to the vanity of giving his name to a new system that he rejected the copernican hypothesis when he was led to propose a new system called the tyconic in which the earth is stationary in the centre of the universe while the sun with all the other planets and comets revolving around him performs his daily revolution about the earth this arrangement of the planets afforded a sufficient explanation of the various phenomena of the heavens and as it was consistent with the language of the scripture and conformable to the indication of the senses it found many supporters notwithstanding the physical absurdity of making the whole system revolve round one of the smallest of the planets it is a painful transition to pass from the astronomical labours of tycho to his astrological and chemical pursuits that Tycho studied and practised astrology has been universally admitted. He calculated the nativity of the emperor Rudolph, and foretold that his relations would make some attempts upon his life. The credulous emperor confided in the prediction, and when the conduct of his brother seemed to justify his belief, he confined himself to his palace, and fell a prey to the fear which it inspired. Tycho, however, seems to have entirely renounced his astrological faith in his latter days. And Kepler states, in the most pointed manner, that Tycho carried on his astronomical labours, with his mind entirely free from the superstitions of astrology, that he derided and detested the vanity and the knavery of astrologers, and was convinced that the stars exercised no influence on the destinies of men. Although Tycho informed Rothman that he had devoted as much labour and expense to the study of terrestrial chemistry. As he did to that of the celestial astronomy yet it is a singular fact that he never published any account of his experiments nor has he left among his writings any trace of his chemical inquiries he pretended however to have made discoveries in the science and we should have been disposed to reprobate the apology which he makes for not publishing them did we not know that it had been frequently given by other alchemists of the age on consideration Sisi, and by the advice of the most learned men i thought it improper to unfold the secrets of the art of alchemy to the vulgar as few persons were capable of using its mysteries to the advantage and without detriment admitting then as we must do that tycho was not only a professional alchemist but that he was practically occupied with its pursuits and continually misled by its delusions it may be uninteresting to the reader to consider how far a belief in alchemy and a practice of its arts have a foundation in the weakness of human nature and to what extent they are compatible with the piety and elevated moral feeling by which our author was distinguished in the history of the human errors two classes of impostors of very different characters present themselves to our notice those who wilfully deluded their species and those who permitted their species to delude themselves, the first of those classes consisted of the selfish tyrants who upheld an unjust supremacy by systematic delusions, and of the growling mountebanks who quenched their avaricious thirst at the fountains of the credulity and the ignorance. The second class comprehended spirits of a nobler mould; it embraced speculative enthusiasts, whom the love of fame and the truth urged onward in a fruitless research and those great lights of knowledge and of virtue who while they stood forward as the landmarks of the age which they adorned had neither the intellectual nor the moral courage to divest themselves of the supernatural radiance with which the ignorance of the vulgar had encircled them the thrones and the shrines which delusion once sustained even in the civilized quarter of the globe are for ever fallen and that civil and religious liberty which in past ages was kept on by the marvelous exhibitions of science to the senses is now maintained by its application to the reason of man the carlatans whether they deal in moral or in physical wonders from a race which is never extinct they migrate to different zones of the social system and though they have changed their place and their purposes and their victims yet their character and motives remain the same The philosophical mind therefore is not disposed to study either of these varieties of impostors but the other two families which compose the second class are the objects of paramount interest the eccentricities and even the obliquities of great minds merit the scrutiny of the metaphysician and the moralist and they derive a peculiar interest from the state of the society in which they are exhibited had cardan and cornelius agrippa lived in modern times Their vanity and self-importance would have been checked by the forms of society, and even if their harmless pretensions had been displayed, they would have disappeared in the blaze of their genius and knowledge, but nursed in superstition and educated in dark and turbulent times, when everything intellectual was in a state of restless transition, the genius and character of great men necessarily reflected the peculiarities of the age in which they lived had history transmitted to us correct details of the leading alchemists and scientific magicians of the dark ages we should have been able to analyze their actions and their opinions and trace them probably to the ordinary principles by which the human mind is in every age influenced and directed but when a great man has once become an object either of interest or of wonder and still more when he is considered as the possessor of knowledge and skill which transcend the capacity of the age he is soon transformed into hero of romance his powers are overrated his deeds exaggerated and he becomes the subject of idle legends which acquire a firmer hold on the credulity from the slight sprinkling of truth with which they are seasoned to disclaim the possession of lofty attributes thus ascribed to great men is a degree of humility which is not often exercised but even when the species of modesty is displayed it never fails to defeat its object it but calls forth a deeper homage and fixes the demigod more firmly in its shrine the history of learning furnishes us with many examples of that species of delusion in which a great mind submits itself to a vulgar adulation and renounces unwillingly if it renounces at all the unenviable reputation of supernatural agency in cases where the self-interest and ambition are the basis of the peculiarity of the temperament and in an age when the conjurer and the alchemist were the companions and even the idols of princes it is easy to trace the steps which a gifted sage retains his ascendancy among the ignorant the hecatomb which is sacrificed to the magician he revives as an oblation to his science, unconscious of possessing real endowments the idol devours the meats that are offered to him without analyzing the motives and expectations under which he is fed but even when the idolater and his god are not placed in transverse relation the love of power or of notoriety is sufficient to induce good men to lend a too willing ear to vulgar testimony in favor of themselves and in our own times it is not common to repudiate the unmerited cheers of a popular assembly, or to offer a contradiction to fictitious tales which record our talents, or our courage, our charity, or our piety. The conduct of the scientific alchemists of the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries presents a problem of very difficult solution. When we consider that a gas, a fluid, and a solid may consist of very same ingredients in different propositions, that a virulent poison may differ from the most wholesome food only in the difference of quantity of the very same elements that gold and silver and lead and mercury and indeed all the metals may be extracted from transparent crystals which scarcely differ in their appearance from a piece of common salt or a bit of sugar candy and that diamond is nothing more than charcoal we need not greatly wonder at the extravagant expectations that the precious metals and the noblest gems might be procured from the basest materials these expectations too must have been often excited by startling results of their daily experiments the most ignorant compounder of simples could not fail to witness the magical transformation of chemical action and every new product must have added to the probability that the tempting doublets of gold and silver might be thrown down the dice-box with which he was gambling. But when the precious metals were found in lead and copper by the action of powerful reagents, it is natural to suppose that they have been actually formed during the process, and men of well-regulated minds even might have thus been led to embark in new adventures to procure a more copious supply, without any insult being offered to the sober reason or any injury inflicted on sound morality when an ardent and ambitious mind is once dazzled with the fascination of some lofty pursuit where gold is the object or fame the impulse it is difficult to pass in a doubtful career and to make a voluntary shipwreck of the reputation which has been staked hope still cheers the aspirant from failure to failure till the loss of fortune and the decay of credit disturb the serenity of his mind and hurry him into the last resource of baffled ingenuity and disappointed ambition the philosopher thus becomes an impostor, and by the pretended transmutation of the baser materials into gold or the discovery of the philosopher's stone he attempts to sustain his sinking reputation and recover the fortune he has lost the communication of the great secret is now the staple commodity with which he is to batter, and the grand talisman with which he is to conjure it can be imparted only to a chosen few to those among the opulent who merit it by their virtues and can acquire it by their diligence and the divine vengeance is threatened against its disclosure a process commencing in fraud and terminating in mysticism is conveyed to wealthy aspirant or instilled into the young enthusiast and the grand mystery passes current for a reason till some cautious professor of the art like tycho denounces its publications as detrimental to society among the extravagant pretensions of the alchemists that of forming a universal medicine was perhaps not the most irrational it was only when they pretended to cure every disease and to confer longevity that they did violence to reason the success of the arabian physicians in the use of mercurial preparations naturally led to the belief that other medicines still more general in their application and efficacious in their healing powers might yet be brought to light and we have no doubt that many substantial discoveries were the result of such overstrained expectations tycho was not merely a believer in the medicinal dogmas of the alchemists he was actually the discoverer of a new elixir which went by his name and which was sold in every apothecary's shop as a specific against the epidemic diseases which were then ravaging germany the emperor rudolph having heard of this celebrated medicine obtained a small portion of it from tycho by the hands of the governor of brandison but not satisfied with the gift he seems to have applied to tycho for an account of the method of preparing it tycho accordingly addressed to the emperor a long letter dated september Fifteen ninety nine, containing a minute account of the process the base of this remarkable medicine is venetian which undergoes an infinity of chemical operations and admixtures before it is ready for the patient when properly prepared he assures the emperor that it is better than gold and that it can be made still more valuable by mixing with it a single scruple either of tincture of corals or sapphire or hyacinth or a solution of pearls or of portable gold if it can be obtained free of all corrosive matter in order to render medicine universal for all diseases which can be cured by perspiration and which he says from a third of those which attack the human frame he combines it with antimony as a well-known pseudorific in the present practice of physic Tycho concludes his letter by humbly beseeching the emperor to keep the process secret and reserve the medicine for himself alone the same disposition of mind which made tycho an astrologer and an alchemist inspired him with a singular love of the marvellous he had various automata with which he delighted to astonish the peasants and by means of invisible bells which communicated with every part of the establishment and which rung with the gentlest touch he had great pleasure in bringing many of his pupils suddenly before strangers muttering at a particular time the words come hither peter as if he had commanded their presence by some supernatural agency if on leaving home he met with an old woman or a hare he returned immediately to his house but the most extraordinary of all these peculiarities remains to be noticed when he lived at uraniburg he maintained an idiot of the name Lep, who lay at his feet whenever he sat down to dinner and whom he had fed with his own hand persuaded that his mind when moved was capable of foretelling future events tycho carefully marked everything he said lest it should be supposed that it was done to no purpose Longo Montanus relates that when any person in the island was sick lep never when interrogated failed to predict whether the patient would live or die it is stated also in the letters of vormius both to gessendi and pater that when Tycho was absent and his pupils became very noisy and merry in consequence of not expecting him, soon home, the idiot, who was present, exclaimed, Juncha a laudit, your master has arrived. On another occasion, when Tycho had sent two of his pupils to Copenhagen on business and had fixed the day of their return, lips surprised him on that day, while he was at dinner, by exclaiming, behold your pupils are bathing in the sea tycho suspecting that they were shipwrecked sent some person on the observatory to look for their boat the messenger brought back word that he saw some persons wet on the shore and in distress with the boat upset at a great distance these stories have been given by gassendi and may be viewed as the specimens of the superstition of the age tycho left behind him a wife and six children but even in the time of gassendi nothing was known of their history excepting that tenengal who married one of the daughters gave up his scientific pursuits and having been admitted among the emperor's counsellors was employed in several of his embassies the instruments of takeover were purchased from his hires by the emperor for twenty-two thousand crowns they were shut up in the house of curtius and were treated with such veneration that no astronomer not even kepler himself was permitted to see or to use them. Here they remained till the death of Emperor Matthias in sixteen nineteen, when the troubles in Bohemia took place. When Prague was taken by forces of the elector palatine, the instruments were carried off, and some were destroyed, and others converted to different purposes. The great brass globe, however, was saved. It was first carried to Niesa, the episcopal city of Silesia, and having been presented to the college of Jesuits, it was preserved in their museum till woodalric the son of christian king of denmark took nyesa in sixteen thirty two the globe was recognized as having belonged to tycho and it was carried in triumph to denmark an inscription written upon it by longer and it was deposited with some pomp in the library of the academy of sciences after tycho left huyen the island was transferred to some of the danish nobility and the following brief but melancholy description of it was given by vormius there is in the island a field where uraniburg was the scientific antiquities of huyn have been more recently described by mr cox in his travels through denmark we landed says he on the southwest part in the small bay just below the place where a stream supplied by numerous pools and fish ponds falls into the sea we ascended the shore which was clothed with short herbage, crossed the stream, and passed over a gently waving surface, gradually sloping towards the sea, and walked a mile to a farmhouse, standing in the middle of the island, inhabited by Mr. Shaw, a Swedish gentleman, to whom the greater part of the island belongs. He lives here in summer, but in winter resides at Lanskrona. This dwelling is the same as existed in Tycho Brahe's time, and, was the farmhouse belonging to his estate, a guide, whom we obtained from Mr. Shaw, conducted us to the remains of tycho's mansion, which are near the house, and consist a little more than a mound of earth which enclosed the garden, and two pits, the sides of his mansion and observatory. End of chapter ten. Read by Lambda.